Okay, welcome everybody tonight to session number six. We can get everybody in, we'll close those doors. Let me give you a heads up at the end of tonight's session, the children's ministry is going to come down here. They're having a baptism tonight. So you can be a part of that while we'll connect these two right at the very end. So if you see a bunch of people coming right at the end of the service tonight, that's a good thing. They're, we're not being invaded. Uh, they're coming for a baptism. We'll, we'll take part of that too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these parables, these teachings of Jesus that have truly opened our eyes to see. And I thank you, Lord, that we can have ears to hear. And tonight, I pray that that is us, that we will legitimately have ears that have been given as a gift by you so that we might hear and understand anything and everything you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Why parables? I've asked that in every one of these sessions. Why? Well, it's a good question. Let's start with Mark 4.10. Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what, this, what the parables meant. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secret. Does everybody? No. You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God. That's that ears to hear. But I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will un not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable. Now, that parable was the first parable we started in this series. And that was the parable of the sowers. If you can't understand the parable of the sower. So I think that's a strategic parable. Uh, chronologically, it looks like one of the first ones he ever gave. I can't know that for sure. But it is obviously a strategic parable. What is that parable? The seed is the word of God. He explains it. The seed's the word of God. You sow the seed. Some are not going to make a crop. or not going to produce a harvest. Some are. Some aren't. So... If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, that's the parable of the sower, how will you understand all the parables? How are you going to understand any of them? And then he says, the farmer plants the seed, and that, that was the parable. So here we go. Um, and let me say this too. I told you when I started this study that I, to the best of my ability, was going to do them chronologically. And that's, that's hard because there's not dates given on Jesus' parables. You just kind of have to use the best information you have to know, did he do that in the first year, second year, third year of the ministry? Was it in the final days of the ministry? So um, they started kind of, maybe, maybe, I'm not saying they did for sure. Early in his ministry, uh, maybe one of the first ones recorded is the parable of the sower. And that's why this has so much, uh, if you can't understand this one, how are you going to get the other ones, in other words? So we're on number 17, which means time is ticking by. He, he's, he's been doing this for a while. He's, he's uh, maybe midway into his three-year ministry. Actually, it doesn't look like he did bring me parables all in his first year. So it's second and third year that most of the parables came. So uh, number, number 17 of 35, the rich fool eat, drink, and be merry. Luke 12, 13. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such a thing as that? And then he said, Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Now, now notice the context. Make sure my brother gives me what's mine, right? Beware of all kinds of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Man, what a story today. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them the story. Here comes the parable. But you've got to get the context to get the parable. Now the parable. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, 
what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, self, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, let's stop right there. Why is Jesus telling this parable? Every time you read a parable, you got to ask yourself, what's he doing? This, he, he's, this is not some wild, crazy story. This is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? This is the kingdom of heaven. If you got ears to hear, this is it. This, this is the kingdom of heaven. This is not some wild, crazy story about, well, yeah, he shouldn't have built a barn. This is kingdom of heaven stuff. Verse 20, but God said, you fool, you will die this very night. And then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth and not have a rich relationship with God. The battle for stuff, the American success story, right? The Amer what is the American dream? I hear people all the time, you know, I want to move to America to experience America dream. What is American dream? I got all this stuff, right? I got to have a seven car garage. I got all this stuff. And then August comes and the 127 yard sale starts. <laughs> huh? You got no more room for your junk. The battle for stuff, possessions and wealth. It is the battle of the human heart. And this, this is the core of this parable. What will you put your trust in and where will you find your security? You know, don't lie to yourself. I taught my kids growing up, the greatest lie you'll ever tell is the one you tell to yourself and you believe it. It's the greatest lie. Where do you put your trust and where do you find your security? Jesus gives us a warning in verse 15 that precedes this parable. Well, that's why the context is so important. He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. That's not it. If that's how you're measuring life, you're using the wrong yardstick. Let's be honest. Much of, of the American culture measures success how? by the amount of its wealth, the amount of its possessions. I mean, why does Bill Gates and, and Elon Musk and these guys get all this attention? Why? Because they're wealthy and it draws, they're seen as successful. What, why are you successful? Because you've got stuff. Jesus says that's not it. It's not it. It's the wrong yardstick. You're measuring the wrong direction. This is where Jesus' parable begins. His parable comes after that. After the warning of greed and the pursuit of life's purpose and security through money and stuff, the rich man in the story had much, but he wanted more. Do you see it? He had much, but he wanted more. This is the first warning sign of greed. Everybody listen. The first warning sign, how do you know that you got greed? Um, what was that little guy's name? There's a preacher years ago. I can't think of his name just left me. But any, anyway, he said the, the, the only way you can tell that the cancer of greed has not already eaten you up is being able to give it away. If you've got money and you can't give it to somebody, then the cancer of greed has already got you. So if you want to be sure that you haven't been deceived yourself, and he uses it in the context of giving a tithe to the church, but it can be used in any context. If, if you think, well, I don't have any trouble with greed. Okay, prove it. Give your money away. Well, I ain't doing that. That's stupid. Well, then maybe the cancer of greed has already begun eating inside of you. So the question in this story is how much is enough? Greed says you never have enough. You're never satisfied with what you have. 
And what's Jesus doing in this story? Be careful. Be careful. Well, what's his word? Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you got. So let's go over to Hebrews and let the Bible interpret the Bible. Hebrews 13, 5, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Not my 401k, not my bank account, not my house, not my car, not my sufficiency. The Lord is my helper. So I have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Let me, let me make this statement. Your only trustworthy security. Where do you put your trust? What's your security? Your only trustworthy security is God. Everything else is going to fail you one day. And I'm going to prove it to you. So John the Baptist. Jesus said, of all men born and women, none's greater than John. Okay? That ought to be on, if that's on your resume, you can't get any higher than that. John the Baptist reveals this greed versus contentment thing as well. He gives an urgent warning about the coming wrath of God and the acts of God's judgment that's going to chop down your tree one day that's ready to strike. Here, John the Baptist, here's his analogy, Luke 3, 7. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes. It's not very nice when they're coming to get baptized to call them snakes. You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, these are Jews now, don't just say to each other, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham, right? Look, I'm Jewish, so God loves the Jews, I'm a Jew, I'm safe. That means nothing. You can see why they didn't like John. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, here it comes. The acts of God's judgment. He's fixing to chop down that tree. Those prideful Jews. The acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the root of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit. What was the first parable that we talked about? Parable of the sower. What's the purpose of the seed? It is to produce a harvest for the gardener. It's always the same purpose. The seed is perfect. It is to produce a harvest for the gardener. And what's he say? Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. You know what the fire is. The crowds ask, when, when they heard this, what did they say? What should we do? It's a good question. I don't want to have the axe chopped down my tree. I don't want my life thrown into the fire. What should we do? This is what's amazing about this story. John reveals the essence of the problem, the reason that the axe is going to cut down the tree. Here we go. Verse 11. John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. Does that almost look out of context? The axe is ready to chop down the tree because you think you're safe because you're children of Abraham. You got no fruit on your trees. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's the fruit? The fruit is the natural result of a repentant heart. When your heart repents, the word has produced an environment for the seed to grow and produce fruit. Don't, don't miss what he said. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says, so what, did, what would that look like in real life? In real life, it says, verse 11, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors, they hated tax collectors. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and said, teacher, what should we do? You see, they're under conviction. They're under conviction. And when you get under conviction, you ask the question, what should I do? Well, the first group that asked him, what should we do? He said, if you, got, if you got two shirts, give one to the poor. If you got food, give it to the hungry. The second group says, what should we do? And he replied, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Enough is enough. Stop, stop cheating. Stop, gra stop grabbing more than you need to have in your hand. And verse 14, what should we do? 
asked some soldiers, not tax collectors, now we're in soldiers. He said, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. You know what every one of them are saying? Same thing. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Stop trying to hoard wealth. Enough is enough. When you got enough, you got enough. First Timothy 6, verse 6. <clears throat> True godliness with contentment. You know what contentment is? I got enough. True godliness with contentment is in, in itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us, with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food, enough clothing, you should be content. Enough is enough. You heard the old saying, I've never seen a, a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Never. Why? You can't take it with you. So, here's my question. Why so much warning? John the Baptist is kind of mean. Why so much a rebuke? Why? Greed and the pursuit of worldly wealth is a form of idolatry. It's idolatry. Greed is, from God's eyes, from God's perspective, greed is idolatry. Why? Y'all need to get this part. Make sure everybody gets it. Why is greed idolatry? Because you're putting your trust and your security in something other than God. Knowing that money can't save you. Is money going to keep you from dying? Elon Musk and Bill Gates are going to die one day. Unless Jesus comes, they're going to die one day. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. You can't save you. Does anybody think you can have a billion dollars and not die? Why is it idolatry? Because it's putting something else in the place that God said, I alone can be. I am your only Savior. Me. That's me. So why are you trusting in this stuff? What's the, what's the first and the second commandment? Great of the Ten Commandments. They're, it's idolatry. You should have no other gods before you. Don't make a graven image. Don't put anything in my position in your life. It's number one and number two. I don't think it's number one and number two by accident. And what is greed? Greed is a form of idolatry. So why all the warning? Because what do you think is going to happen to idolaters? The idolater will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's what he said. Don't be greedy. Um, let me read Colossians 3, 5. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. What would they be? Those things lurking within us. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is what? Say it out loud. An idolater. Worshiping the things of the world. Because of these sins, what? Say it out loud. Because of these sins, the axe is poised to strike the root of the tree. That's why so much warning. It's idolatry. Why all the warnings? Jesus' parable explains the why. God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who's going to get everything you worked for? You fool, without God, you can't hold on to any of it, any, even your own life. You can't hold on to your life without God. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? King Solomon, now let's go back to the Old Testament. King Solomon was one of the richest men on earth. He had many possessions, but he came to a sad conclusion. I've always read this. It, it makes me sad when he concluded this. Who's going to get it all when you die? You know, I've seen a lot of people. Let, let me get real personal here. I've, seen, I've been with a lot of people in the last stages of their life in the last 30 years. And I've seen two things. I've seen some people in the last stages of their life just... Uh, they got very little in their hands. They, they've let it all go. And they've got this kind of peace. And they kind of live with a grin on their face. And those are believers. They just have this peace. 
And it's almost like they would look at you in the eye and say, I've been waiting for this my whole life. And I know what's coming. I've been waiting for this my whole life. So no mourn for me, buddy. And then I got this other group. And even in the last stages of their life, they are trying to hold on to the stuff. Trying to figure out who's going to get it when they, and they're worried about who's going to get it. It's like, Ooh. And it, they're just mean, cranky people. You know what? Because it doesn't satisfy you. Still, still trying to hang on to something. You know you can't, you can't keep it. You can't do it. Just makes you meaner. So, King Solomon. You know, we, we think he's a smart guy, except he had too many wives. That's always the thing I think. He wasn't so smart. He had 600 wives, maybe. But here's what he says. I came to hate all my hard work here on the earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. He didn't like that. Anyone who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, who can tell who the guy's going to get my, my job when I die is going to be a nut? Who knows? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. I agree. It, it is. If that's your life, it is meaningless, right? So here's what he says. I gave up in despair. Questioning the value of my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill and then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days are uh, their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It's all meaningless. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction. I want to tell you how I interpret that sentence. I want to read it again. So I realized, I decided that there's nothing better to enjoy than to enjoy food, drink, find satisfaction in my work. Well, let me interpret that. At some point... You must decide enough is enough. You got to decide. I don't need any more. In fact, I think it even comes more than that. Less is more. Less is more. The people that I have met at the ends of their lives that have the most contentment know that less is more. More is not better. Less is more. And I think when I read this, I'm going to read it again. So I decided there's nothing better to enjoy food, drink, and find satisfaction in my work. En uh, enough's enough. Let me keep going. And then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. What? I got enough food. I got enough drink. And you know what? What I did today was fun. I enjoyed it. I got enough. I got enough. These come from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from God? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner, here he gives this example again. If a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to one who pleases him. This too is meaningless like chasing the wind. Everything is meaningless like chasing the wind. It's all foolishness because you, why? Why is it foolish to accumulate wealth? Why is it like chasing the wind? Because you can't catch it. Just go out of here today and try to catch the wind. Go ahead. Have a good time. They'll lock you up somewhere. Because <laughs> you can't catch the wind. And if you caught it, you couldn't hold on to it. It'd go through your fingers. And that's what worldly wealth is. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but, have, but not have a rich relationship with God. Unless, 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 there's a caveat. Unless you could live forever. Ooh. What if you could live forever? What? Why can't I take it with me? Because I die. But what if you could undo the death part? What if you could not die part? It would change everything. So let's go to Revelation. Last one in this, in this parable. 
And let me give you some context. Revelation 21 is, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea and there's a holy city, New Jerusalem, come down as a bride. That, that's what Revelation 21. I'm going to go down to verse 5. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm going to make everything new. Let, let me give you my version. We're going to start all over. Everything's going to start all over. Whole new set of rules. And when it starts this next time, Here'll be the difference. It'll never stop. And what you accumulate in this next phase, you will never lose. What you gain will never be lost. Oh, I'm excited about this one. I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it's finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious, that I mean everybody's going to be victorious. But the ones who are victorious, what's going to happen? Will inherit all these blessings. What blessings? I'm going to make everything new. You know what the difference is this time? When he makes it new, it'll stay new. It'll never get old. And you'll never lose it. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Who would give up that which he cannot keep? To lose that which you could have had that you could not lose. Parable number 18, the barren fig tree. This one's really good. Actually, they're all really good. Luke 13. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Now, if you read over that, you'll never get the rest of it. They're talking about a bad thing that happened with uh, Pontius Pilate. Pilate had murdered some Jews that were from Galilee. Jesus is a Jew from Galilee. They murdered some Jews from Galilee who were at the Jerusalem temple offering sacrifices. He murdered them. Somehow he murdered them. Okay? Jesus says, do you think those Galileans that Pilate murdered, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? You think that's why they died? You think that's why they had such a rough ending? Is that why they suffered? Here it comes. Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sin and turn to God. Are you getting it yet? You got ears to hear? Well, let's do it one more time. Number four. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Now, we've already talked about these Jews that are worshiping in the temple and Pilate murders them. Well, let's use another group. What about these 18 people? I'm assuming they're Jewish too. And they died in the Tower of Siloam that they just happened to be standing in the wrong spot at the wrong time and the tower falls on them. Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Why do bad things happen to these people? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Jesus says, no, I tell you again, unless you repent, you're going to perish too. Y'all getting it? I keep saying that for a reason, okay? What's he, what's he doing? What's he saying? Why is he bringing up these disastrous circumstances and these untimely deaths? And then he puts in context this disastrous circumstance, and unless you repent, you're going to get it too. Why does he do that? Then Jesus tells a story. Okay, here's what's happening. He's going to do this. He's going to put the two together. So Jesus tells a story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on the fig tree. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig on this tree that I planted. Cut it down. It's just taken up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it one more year, just another year. And I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. And if we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Do you see it? It's important to notice the context of this parable of the fig tree. What's the context? 
Jesus twice says, no, I tell you again, unless you repent, you're going to perish just like that one, those people that the tower fell on, just like the ones that Pilate murdered. You're, they perish, they perish. You're going to perish too. What? What? Everybody dies. Not just bad people. Everybody dies. Fig trees are supposed to bear fruit. Figs, all right? Is that complicated? Their purpose on earth is to bear figs. There is another hidden meaning inside this parable. There's the plain meaning, I like to call it, and I think there's a hidden meaning in here as well. Israel is the fig tree that refused to repent and bear fruit after three years of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Coincidence? If you look at biblical history, Israel had three years. Jesus had a public ministry of three years. He preached to the Jews first, right? He preached to the Jewish people. For three years, he preached to the Jewish people. What did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven's near. Are you with me? He kept saying the same thing to the Jews. Repent. And, and they didn't repent. And they were, listen, they were cast aside for a season. You're living in that season. I believe you're living, I'm living in the end of that season, by the way. So let's go to Hosea. Israel, fig tree. Are they the fig tree? Jesus talking about fig trees are supposed to bear figs. Let's go back to Hosea 9.10. The Lord says, oh, Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. But then they deserted me for idolatry, for Baal, Peor, giving themselves to that shameful idol. Soon they became vile, as vile as the God they worshipped. Why does Jesus connect the lack of repentance to a barren fig tree? Do you see it? Why is he tying the lack of repentance, unless you repent, you will also perish, to a barren fig tree. They're right side beside each other. Are they connected? Do you see it? Repentance brings forgiveness of sin and a restored relationship with God. Are we, uh, always, here's my best example of repentance. Repentance is the acknowledgement that, that God's over here. Okay, God's over here, and I'm walking this way. And repentance is me turning around and facing God so that I might have a fellowship, restored relationship with God. I'm not going to restore my relationship with God when my back's to Him. Right? While I'm, I'm walking away from Him while my back's to Him. So I repent. Repent is a, is a physical, spiritual turning. It's a turning around. So when I turn and face God, now I have an opportunity to restore my relationship with God. And you think I can bear fruit with my back to God? You think I'm going to have figs on my fig tree with my back to God? No, that's not how it works. We bear fruit because the seed is the Word. And the Word and the seed work in the fertile soil when you're facing God. It does matter. So repentance brings forgiveness. This repentance allows, allows a, the real purpose and mission of your life, the real purpose and mission is to bear fruit, right? That's fig trees. You're supposed to bear fruit. God's mercy allows for time of repentance. In the story of the fig tree, he says, give it one more year. Give it one more chance. Why is there one more chance? Why, why not just cut the thing down? It's God's mercy. I'm going to give it one more year but the tree, the life, must bear fruit, or it will become useless and thrown into the fire. So let's go to Matthew 7, 15. Let's keep going with this story. And Jesus himself says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but they're really vicious wolves. But they look like sheep. You can identify them by their fruit. What? You can, you can identify a sheep that's a wolf by what they produce. Are you with me? You can. You can tell. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree 
can't produce bad fruit. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. This is coming from Jesus. So here's the absolute truth. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. You can't do it. Something happens. You can't do it. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. How can you tell if it's a wolf dressed like a sheep? By what the wolf dressed like a sheep does. Not what they look like, but what they do. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Fruit matters. It matters. Good trees produce good fruit. It does matter. Matthew 12, 33. Let's keep going. A tree is identified by its fruit. This is Jesus. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes... How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your hearts determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or they will condemn you. Your word is also your fruit. Your word is your fruit. This has been the theme of Jesus since he first began preaching. I can tell you the theme of Jesus. We're going back to this parable. Pilate had murdered some people and they were thinking, well, they must be really bad people. And then a tower fell on some people and they were, you must be some really, really, really bad people. That's bad luck. And Jesus says, you're all going to get the same thing if you don't what? If you don't what? Repent. So do you think it matters? This turning around? This turning around? So here we go. This, what I just told you, that has been his message since the day he started preaching. I'm going to prove it to you. Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, so we're way early in his ministry. John the Baptist had been arrested. He left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there, moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah in the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Now, by the way, that's a reference to Gentiles. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has been shined. Here it comes, verse 17. What's been, his message? What's been Jesus' message since the beginning? Single message. Here it is, verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach. And what's his sermon? Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's it. That's the barren fig tree story. That everybody's going to die. And in the end, he, his word it was the seed that sowed in for three years in Israel. And the fig tree Jewish people in those three years bore no fruit. Not all of them. Peter's Jewish, okay, but as a people. So just cut them down? No, give them one more year. Give them one more chance. What does he want them to do? What's the context of the barren fig tree? Unless you repent, you're going to perish too. So Gentiles over here, us Gentiles in the church age, we can look at those Jews and say, what a bunch of nuts you are. But unless you repent, unless I repent, I will perish too. Last one, number 19, the unforgiving servant. Whoa. If y'all think you've ever been nervous in a session, you'll be nervous in this one. I'll just tell you up front. Matthew 18, 21. 
There will not be anybody in here not touched in some way by this parable. I'll make a prediction. Peter came to him and asked. Peter came to him and asked. Coming to Jesus said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? This is when some of y'all think you ought to go get a drink of water. How many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times Peter's thinking, that's enough. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Ooh. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven. Now, now, do not miss this line. He's asking, how many times do I got to humble myself in front of that nut? How many times do I got to do it? Eat, eat, eat crow. How many times do I got to put up with that nut? How many times? And Jesus' answer is, therefore, the kingdom of heaven. Now, we're not talking about that nut in you anymore, are we? We're not talking about that nut in you. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. So everybody listen. This is about whether or not you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date. What do you think is going to happen on the last day? He's going to settle accounts with Terry Cooper. He's going to settle accounts with you. And he's got good records. Okay? The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his, uh, his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Okay? Ooh. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold. Along with his wife, don't miss this, along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt of millions of dollars he owned to the, owed to the master. But the man, the debtor, the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. You'll never pay off that much. But he cries out to the master anyway. And then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. Now, let's do something. Here we go. If you're not cheering, then you, you better start cheering. Because that is one incredible master. Millions. He wrote it off. Millions. Now, what would be your response? The reason I had you clap your hands is I hope you're excited about this. Because something's going to happen in this story that this guy's not clapping his hands. Then that master, one who just got a millions of dollars debt canceled, just wrote it off, wrote it off. His master was filled with pity. He released him, forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. $1,000, for those of you who struggle with math, is less than millions. <laughs> he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Now, let's pause like we did earlier. Why is Jesus telling this story? To entertain us? He is revealing the secret of the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to make it and who's not going to make it? Okay, so this is serious business. His fellow servant fell down, begged him, before him, and begged him for a little more time. And notice something, at least in the NLT, the, the wording is the same. Be patient with me, and I'll pay it, he pleaded. He's, give me some time. Be patient, and I'll pay you back somehow. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and they told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man who he had forgiven millions of dollars and said, You are evil. You're, you're evil. You're, you're rotten. Now, what's... What makes him evil? What makes him evil? Well, isn't this just good business practices? Huh? Yeah, we got, we got a company to run here. I got mouths to feed. I got a big payroll. Huh? This, isn't this just how you do business? 
You're, you're an evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous million-dollar debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king, he's mad now. He sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid every debt. And can I ask you a question? This is the underlying hidden meaning inside the parable. How are you ever going to pay the debt off in prison? You can't. What do you think that means? Tortured. Tortured until you can pay it off. What do you think it means? You will never pay it off, and you will never not be tortured. What do you think hell is? You will never pay it off, and you will never stop being tortured. Why? Why? I'm going to get to that. Not until every one of us gets it. Verse 35. This is what my heavenly Father is going to do. This is what my heavenly Father will do to you, to you, if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So right now, everybody right now, let's stop. Everybody stop. I'll, I'll, I'll participate the same as I'll ask you to participate. The God of heaven is talking to me and you right now. And he just said, he just said in English where you understand it. This is what I'm going to do to you. This is what I'm going to do to you. If you don't forgive those people who have wronged you and let it go. This is what I'm going to do to you. Is he bluffing? Peter was asking for the measurement of true justice. And you know what he thought it was? Seven. Seven's enough. Mercy or justice? Which one do we truly desire? Because this whole story is about those two things. Which one do I want? Do I, do I want justice or do I want mercy? Do, which one? Because they're, they're, they're both have their place, right? They have their place. Justice and mercy. Man's heart is corrupted and doesn't correlate with the heart of God. True justice is what he said 490 times. Man's heart is corrupted. So we don't think like God does. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways and my thoughts above yours. We don't think like God. So don't think that somehow or another, because I think like this, that's how he thinks. No, it's the other way around. He's the one that thinks right. We're messed up. This is proof in this story. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love, it's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's not rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no records of being wrong. So, you know, I know that there'd be people who would, who would intentionally go to somebody's house and say, I forgive you. And they would be checking it off in a book. It was 430. <laughs> 430. I got 60 more times. Is that it? Is that, is that it? Love keeps no record of wrongs. So let me tell you where this goes. And let me tell you what, this, this, is, this is serious business. And I'm not telling you anything. I'm not telling me. I, when I write these things, when I do these things, I got to eat it before I can serve it to you. The next part is why Jesus is telling this parable. Are you ready? Because I hope you are. I'm going to repeat verse 31 34. I'm going to repeat it. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven, the million-dollar forgiven guy, and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to be prison to be tortured until he had paid off his entire debt. So here's the question. All right. That's what, I, are you ready for this? Here, this question. Each one of you answer it to yourself. Do you want justice or do you want mercy? Because we want one or the other. Do, do you want justice or do you want mercy? Be careful. That million dollar debtor 
He owed a million dollars to the master. And he wanted mercy, right? It's pretty clear. He wanted mercy. But when he left the office, when he left the office, he wanted mercy. But when he left the office, he gave justice. He wanted mercy, but he gave justice when he left the office. That, in the king's mind, doesn't correlate. Now, in your mind, my mind, we may think, well, that sounds fair to me. The king says, you're evil. If, if you can't do both inside the same person. You can't do both. If you want mercy, you must give mercy. If you demand justice, you're going to receive justice. Now, maybe you think that's not right. But you're not king. And you're not going to stand in front of you on the last day. You're going to stand in front of him. And he's already told you, this is what I'm going to do. This, this is what I'm going to do. Anyone. I'm, I'm going to do this. Has, has, let me ask everybody a question. Has anyone ever wronged you? Does anyone right now? Can you think of somebody? Because I know you can't. Do you think of anyone who owes you an apology? Maybe owes you a debt? And everybody's got somebody in their life. Everybody's got probably more than a few somebodies in your life that, that owes you, that's wronged you, that did something terrible to you. Do you want justice? Yes or no? If you, be careful. Because the human heart says what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want justice. I do. The law says you can demand justice and you can demand payment in full. You can. Yep. The law, the law is justice, right? The law of man says you can demand justice and you can get payment in full. But I'm going to say, be careful. Do you want justice? Do, do you want to be that person? I want justice. The deceitful human heart wants to receive mercy, but he wants to offer or demand justice. And there's a problem. That won't balance when you enter the presence of the king. It's not going to balance. It's just not going to balance. What? His response is, you're evil. You, 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 you want mercy, but you dish out justice. You're evil. They don't balance. They're not the... In, it's not, it's not right. Well, it's right down here on earth, but you're not going to earth. You're going to the kingdom of heaven is like. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about earth. Now, how did all this Jesus story begin? Peter asked a question. Let me read it to you. Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? It's a good question. I don't see anything wrong with the question. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. So here's the question tonight. Is this confusing? And I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, but do you need three to four weeks of deep study, prayer, and fasting to understand any of this parable? Huh? Do you all say, well, preacher, I think I'll need to think about this, pray, fast, and then I'll see if I... You don't, you don't need five minutes. And neither do I. It's not confusing. Jesus has told us that the kingdom of heaven is revealed inside this story. Now, there's one more verse from Jesus in this story. It's the conclusion of the matter regarding the kingdom of heaven. I've already made a point of it. I'll do it again. Verse 35. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. If you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. From your heart. You ever think about what that means? So you ever, you, okay, I think of uh, my two, uh, Case and Colt, two of my grandsons. Um, uh, Lauren will say to Case, um, you go apologize to Colt. <laughs> he goes over and says, I'm sorry. Is that from the heart? That's from the lips, and it's right on the edge of the lips. It ain't even inside. It's on the outside of those lips. I don't even know how you got enough air through there to make a sound. 
What is it? That's not it. So if you're thinking that this, this is a superficial um, apology, you're, not, you're still not getting it. This is what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart, which means this. Let it go. Let it go. Is it easy? No. Is it freedom? Oh, man, is it freedom. Oh, it's glorious freedom. It is freedom. There are people sit in church every week, maybe in this room right now, likely in this room right now, that have refused to give mercy and forgiveness to other people. And you think, you think that you are right. And you think that your justice, your measurement standard of justice is righteousness. You're wrong. You're just wrong. Are you sure you want to give them justice instead of mercy? Are you absolutely sure? Is this too complicated to understand? No. It's absolutely black and white clear. And here it is. Here's the summary. This is from God. You want mercy, you give mercy. So when I was a kid growing up, we were farmers. And we, one of my jobs constantly was cleaning out the the barn and we have you know what a scoop shovel is it's about that wide and um it's the shovel that stuff so and uh there's little shovels and there's scoop shovels scoop shovels about as big as a man can handle they don't make them any bigger than that because they're you can't pick them up once you scoop so i've come to this conclusion in my personal life i've had people wrong me in my life just like everybody else and I want to give mercy with a scoop shovel because there's a day coming. I want mercy in a scoop shovel. I want the measure by which I give it to be the measure by which I receive it. Because I know me. I'm the guy who owed a million dollars. I get it. And the freedom of using that shovel is glorious. It's not how the world works, I understand. But it's how God works. You want justice? Be careful. You're going to get justice. There's another deceitful heart point in here, inside. This 490 mercy moment choice, it doesn't just affect you. In fact, this one really hit me hard when I saw it. If you refuse to give forgiveness and mercy, it doesn't just affect you. So maybe you're a parent and there's somebody that you don't want to let go of. It's not just you that it's affecting. It affects your whole family. Let me tell you, it affects your children. You know the story that he says, I'm going to throw you and your wife and your children into prison for the debt you couldn't pay. It isn't. Sin doesn't just affect you. Sin corrupts your entire house. You, singularly, refusing to let go of something can corrupt your children and your children's children. I'm convinced that generational curses, listen, generational curses can find their origin in this cry for justice while refusing to give mercy. A father who refused to give mercy can affect generations of kids that follow after him. This story of Jesus isn't some isolated truth moment. It's throughout all the scriptures. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer that you grew up with? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. What did you think that meant? Forgive me while I forgive you. I've heard it said that failing to forgive someone is like taking a poison pill and waiting for the other person to die. It's just killing you and you think they're getting sick, but they're not. You're killing yourself and you're destroying the blessing of your family. You're destroying the blessing of your children and your children's children. God wants to forgive you and wipe your debts from the books. He wants God's desires to give you and I mercy. 
And when we stand before God on the last day, when you stand before the glorious throne and give an account for what you have done with that which you have received, does anybody in this room think you're going to look at him and say, give me justice? You're going to say, and I'm going to say, give me mercy. I'm going to pray. We're going to close. And I think that group will be down here. Please, if you would, hang in here with us until they come down here for that baptism. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for mercy. Without mercy, Lord, we have no hope. We could never pay this debt off. So thank you for mercy. May we tonight all be convicted that we need to give mercy with the same measure that we hope one day to receive it from you. In Jesus' name, amen.